Hey everybody, Joe here from the Lines Led by Donkeys podcast, but uh, I guess you probably already knew that. If you like what we do here on the show, consider supporting us on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash lionsledbydonkeys. Just $5 per month gets you every regular episode early, access to our community Discord, a digital copy of my book, The Hooligans of Kandahar, as well as its audiobook, read by me, and over five years of bonus content. By supporting the show, you support us and allow us to keep our show as it always been, ad-free. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Lines Led by Donkeys podcast. I'm Joe, and with me, trapped on a small tropical island, surrounded by angry Japanese soldiers of the Imperial era, is Tom. I have, firmly... not even, I have not even told you what this episode's about, yeah, but I've just I given no you a hint. I have no idea what this episode's going to be, and I'm like, hmm, surrounded by a- angry Japanese soldiers. This is either going to be World War II or, like, the Tokugawa Shogunate. You know, I'm, I'm actually kind of uh, uh, disappointed in myself. I haven't explored more of the, the Tokugawa era or even, like, the like the Sengoku period and stuff, because, like, it's... I'll tell you why it's interesting me, interesting to me, and everybody's gonna laugh at me for it. It's not because I ever studied this period in university. I never touched on Japanese history. It was not part of my program at all. But I love Shogun Total War. <laughs> You're such a dweeb. <laughs> Look, I've I've never once in the in the years doing this show have I ever denied the fact that I am an insufferable nerd. <laughs> yeah, do you know what? We should do a series about the fall of the Tokugawa Shogunate. It will be like seven episodes long, but wouldn't be the longest. I mean, it'd be—I no. think it'd be, it would be tied, but it, would, it wouldn't be the longest. <laughs> um, now, the reason why I said that you were surrounded by angry Japanese soldiers of the Imperial era is because, it, because today we are talking about a little thing known as the Battle of Saipan. Oh. Saipan famously uh, the site of the incredible beef b- between Mick McCarthy and Roy Keane in 2002 during the World Cup. What? <laughs> okay, so... All <laughs> every of, time e- this happens. <laughs> every Irish person's ears have just, like, pricked up. So, Roy Keane, very famous footballer, now football manager, absolute mental cunt. Like, from the time he was, like, early on in his career, like super aggressive and super physical player like incredible footballer but like would like go in both both feet slide tackles like would kick people hit it's them the on the pitch I can respect I'd, I'd, I'd like if you're gonna go down and hold your shin and cry about it it better be like I'm glad there's a footballer that, that makes you actually earn it yeah and like so for the entirety of his career was like very opinionated and not afraid to say it like would say shit to managers say like stuff to the press that like any other footballer would be like too afraid of like repercussions for their career where he was just like nah fuck this like so in 2002 the world cup was being held in saipan and essentially they arrived there and they were like was it in japan at the time yeah, yeah, yeah okay um so the the quality of the pitch that they were play- training on was kind of shit. The weather was like super oh, 2002 hot. is when it was split between Korea and Japan. Okay. Yeah. So um, the pitch, like the ground was really hard. It was really dry. It was really hot. And like Roy Keane was essentially like, why are we training on this terrible pitch when other people have better, you know, better places to train? And essentially this like blew up to the point of like, 
he told Mick McCartney the then Ireland uh, soccer manager to be like you know sort it out or I'm gone and he left like he just like said no fuck this and left <laughs> and like the, no joke this split Ireland like down the middle like this like thankfully that's the, never happened before like to, <laughs> to this day like if you're in a pub with like people's dads and you bring it up like people are still so passionate this was like the second Irish civil war <laughs> Like Wait, no, like hey, wouldn't it be like a third? <laughs> I mean, yeah. Let's let's um, call it let's let's call it like one point five. <laughs> so like like it played out in over the in the media over the course of like weeks and everything, and it was like it was like such a divisive thing that like people were like they either were on Roy Keane's side or they weren't, and they were like, no, he was right to leave. You know, he was ju- he was justified. Like everything that he brought up was true and correct. And then there's people who's like, yeah, but he should have just gone on with it. Like, you know, he should have just like played the matches. And like to this day, like 21 years later, like it's still a super contentious topic. <laughs> uh, well, the Battle of Saipan we're going to talk about today um, is only slightly worse. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a bit of an understatement. <laughs> it, 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 it involves something that is now known as Suicide Cliff. So, um, oh. What do you know about the Battle of Saipan? I mean, like, it's interesting to me because obviously Nate and I were in the American military. So these things are kind of mythologized to us. I mean, neither of us were Marines, but, you know, we went through normal American history education, which, of course, talks about World War II an awful lot. I'm curious what you, an Irish guy not in the military, knows at all about the American Pacific theater of World War II. Uh, Literally nothing. I know it was shit. And they had to, like spend a whole lot of time clearing islands and uh, in the 70s they found weird Japanese holdouts which I learned from this show so yeah. god those guys rule I think my favorite one was the guy in Guam who just lived in a cave and didn't bother anybody <laughs> uh, and his cave is still there in Guam mm-hmm. um, so Saipan has something of a nickname like the term D-Day like when you hear it what do you think you think of Normandy of course like now D-Day means something much more than that it's literally just like the day that this big operation is supposed to start so now when we think of d-day we immediately think of operation overlord which is the really sick name for the invasion of normandy (laughs) Uh, now saipan is known as the pacific d-day so you know it's not going to be good Uh, Saipan is a small island measuring about 50 square miles, 12 miles long, and about five miles wide at its widest point. Though, to be fair, this is quite large for an island in the Pacific theater. Uh, like when you think about like Tarawa, Peleliu, and stuff like other things that we have talked about, this is actually kind of big. Um, it's the largest of the Northern Marianas Islands, which today, of course, is an American commonwealth. But during World War II as part of the Empire of Japan because it had been captured by the Japanese from the Germans during World War I and had been given to them as a prize for being on the winning side of that whole European clusterfuck. And then it became part of this thing known as the South Seas Mandate. Um, there's a lot of islands in the Pacific that have very strange histories. Like, and Most people don't know that like Samoa, not the American part, but the independent nation of Samoa was once a German colony. Like, what? Yeah. <clears throat> there's a so lot of saying, we- there's a lot of weird shit happening in the Pacific before World War One. <laughs> so you're saying the Rock is a post World War Two German psyop? 
I don't know if he's from Samoa or American Samoa, and I don't want to look it up. <laughs> Wait, I'm looking it up. I'm looking it up. We're doing live research on the show. Uh, the, 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 the entire Anoe uh, wrestling dynasty is actually Kai- agents of the Kaiser. <laughs> um, well, he was born in California. But, well, of course uh, he was. Uh, I His family comes from one of the Samoas. I'm not entirely sure which one. Yeah, no, so his mother is Samoan, and his dad is Tony Atlas, a.k.a. Anthony White, who is from Virginia. Ah, well, look, the Kaiser is involved somehow. Um, Japan wanted Saipan for one very, very specific reason. It's like a last fortress they could build to defend the home islands in any future war in the Pacific. It became a very important outpost. Japanese settlers and construction workers flooded in by the tens of thousands to build the infrastructure a fortress and a settlement would need. Previously, the Germans hadn't really done anything. Uh, they hadn't even bothered to build a road, which was <laughs> which is pretty common for the Pacific holdings. Like the, They just wanted them to be like, look what we have. They didn't actually yeah, do anything with them. Using it kind of just like a physical buttress. Yeah. Um, by the time World War II would finally start, almost 30,000 Japanese workers had moved into the island, which outnumbered the, the, the Sa- Saipan natives. By like, There's only like 9,000 natives compared to 30,000 Japanese workers. <laughs> uh, e- even before Japan would fuck up catastrophically and bomb Pearl Harbor to bring the U.S. kicking and screaming into World War II, Saipan was well fortified with coastal artillery, bunkers, underground facilities, you name it. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't like the idea of underground facilities. Yeah, and like they, they dug a ton of them, and there was already a, a pretty massive natural cave system on the island, all of which will soon become a nightmare for the Americans. <laughs> Imagine if Hosha had a discovered Saipan. It would be like his Hodge. <laughs> We need more Albanian cave systems. I support the expansion of the Albanian Pacific Empire. <laughs> Greater Albania. <laughs> of course, for years, none of this would be needed. But eventually, by 1944, the sun was rapidly setting on the once rising sun of the Empire of Japan, also known as the finding out portion of fucking around. Mm. And the Japanese home islands, which had been being bombed already by the American uh, air arm, it, it was the Saipan was wanted by the United States because obviously they couldn't bypass it. They needed to, yeah. they, they needed to invade it, but also because if they took it over, their bombers would be much closer to the Japanese home islands, um, and it would just be constantly raining, you know, hellfire from the sky, both figuratively and then eventually literally. AKA Henry Kissinger's wet dream of killing Asian people. Yeah, he he missed out. Uh, unfortunately, yeah, like, unfortunately yeah. he made up for that. God, ima- imagine how bad it would have been if Henry Kissinger had have been in some semblance of like influence during World War Two. I know he was, he was still a kid at I that mean, stage. He's technically an undying orb of flesh these days. <laughs> so <laughs> we must destroy the orb. <laughs> Now, Saipan was not alone in this operation, but the Caroline Islands and Palau would also be part of the target as part of a greater operation called Operation Forager. Though, just because Japan was on its last legs did not mean they would be going down without a fight. In command of the the entire defense of this area was Lieutenant General Hideyoshi Obata, commander of the 31st Army, who was in charge of defending three different American targets at the same time. 
which is not ideal. On, on Saipan, Obata had around 31,500 men, but it was as badly organized as the Japanese military could be. For starters, and we've talked about this a lot, the Japanese Imperial Army and the Japanese Imperial Navy fucking hate one another. Uh, <laughs> and you have both on the island, and he is technically in charge of both of them. Uh, they, got as, they got about as close as you could really get to being in the middle of a civil war without actually starting one. So he's just Japanese Imperial John Hume. <laughs> like, the, at a certain level, uh, like the, the, the army and the navy of Japan had a more important role of being politicians than actually like a military branch. They were fighting for influence and power within the halls of the imperial government. These beefs literally had body counts, uh, political assassinations against the two, and sometimes civilian government politicians were incredibly commonplace. And this is even to go into all of the coup plots and attempts. And this is like, effectively Japan is a military dictatorship at this point, um, but they wouldn't become like a literal one until after this battle. But it, between the army and navy, those were the two strongest arms of the imperial government. Like the prime minister at the time is still Hideki Tojo, but he yeah. was in the army. So like the, na- <laughs> the so the navy fucking hated him, uh, and they wanted like a navy guy to be prime minister. Not like so you know there was a civilian government as window dressing. Yeah, it's it's the Call of Duty versus Battlefield mid 2000s or mid 2010s argument going on. <laughs> it's like which side are you on? You can't play Battlefield and Call at the same time. You got to pick one or the other. And meanwhile, like the the Japanese civilian government is the guy still insisting we play Counter-Strike. No, the Japanese uh, imperial government is people who play Arma. You know, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> The naval forces were commanded by Vice Admiral Kuichi Nagumo, whose name might ring a bell for some, you know, deep history nerds out there, because he was a, he was there for the highest of highs and the lowest of lows when it came to the Pacific War against the Americans. Oh, and those lows are going to get so low. Well, the low ends with this being the last battle he's going to fight in. Uh, <laughs> he was the commander of the attack on Pearl Harbor. Um, as well as the commander of the Japanese naval Armageddon at the Battle of Midway. Most people, like when they think of Pearl Harbor, they think of Isoroku Yamamoto, but he actually planned it. He didn't command it. Nagumo commanded it. And then, you know, Midway being the, the wall that eventually slammed into the Imperial Navy. Now, Nagumo had zero ships. He was in charge of 7,000 sailors, which included Marines, while Obata, the overall commander, had 22,000 soldiers. And, of course, the two sides hated one another. I, I, have, I have a question. How do you have 7,000 sh- soldiers and no ships? Uh, like, like, coastal defense batteries were naval personnel. Uh, they had, like, special landing teams, which uh, we just use the term marine for shorthand because they're, like, naval infantry, uh, uh, naval c- engineers and construction workers, they tended the docks because uh, hypothetically the Japanese Imperial Navy could show up here. Okay. Which we'll get to why that isn't the case, uh, why they don't eventually show up because it ends in something nicknamed the Great Marianas Turkey Shoot. <laughs> um, so it's not like some guy in like water wings, like swimming out with a gun. Actually, funny story. So uh, Obviously, there was never a uh, American invasion of the Japanese home islands because, mm-hmm. you know, they 
split the atom and then two cities. But I'm going to watch Oppenheimer at like two o'clock. I attempted to watch it last week, but it was sold out. And there's only one <laughs> one showing in English. Everything else is in Russian, somewhat ironically. And the uh, the illegal stream that you found online didn't work. It sucks. It's a hand cam thing. And I'm- <laughs> it's just that guy who, like, you know, he had to sit at the front of the IMAX and the screen is all distorted. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's not good. Uh, but it, during the the proposed uh, American invasion of the Japanese home islands, the Japanese had defenders uh, like whose plan it was. They literally, you, you like, oh, you know, old timey pressurized diving suits with the big fucking helmet, like the diving bell. They had thousands of people whose job it was to literally sit like crisscross applesauce on the bottom of the sea, hooked to an oxygen line to the surface. And then when the invasion started, they were to simply walk uh, out to the American fleet on the seafloor and then stab the bottom of American ships with a suicide spear. Like it had a giant shape charge at the end of it. So they they did kind of had a guy in water wings. Somehow the Japanese invented the big daddy from Bioshock. That's right. 60 years before, um, oh, what's his face? Who I can't remember his name. That's right, baby. Uh, so the two sides absolutely hated one another. Um, like when Obata had uh, command meetings, Nagumo just wouldn't show up. Naval officers openly disrespected and uh, disobeyed their army superiors. So the situation was, you know, bad. And to make mm. matters worse, when the American invasion fleet appeared off the coast, Obata wasn't even on Saipan. He had gone over to Palau for an inspection of their defenses and then got trapped there, unable to return. <laughs> so in his place to be Lieutenant General Yochisogu Saito, uh, another veteran of the Kwatong Army, you know, so he, you know he's a real bastard and a political monster, as well as being a literal physical monster. And Saito came up with a simple plan. While other Japanese commanders had the the tactic of letting Americans come to shore and then kill them when they're in large numbers, he wouldn't. He knew from the beginning they were almost certainly leading a suicidal defense, and there'd be no hope of winning the battle, which I suppose is a good place to start from. Like, can't go any lower if you know you're going to die. Yeah. Uh, so, to f- time to fight dirty, kicking yeah. people in the nuts and the shins. <laughs> See, just like our episode about North Korea, he had a uh, he had a whole bunch of guys in boots waiting to just drill people in the balls, <laughs> putting um uh like fucking landmines on the end of your boots and just <laughs> kicking people into space. The the bonsai nut kick. Um, I mean, to be fair, that would be an incredible like fallout like insane weapon it's just a pair of boots with like explosive charges and you hit someone and it just turns them into pink mist i feel like a rocket powered boot for kicking probably already exists in some form of fiction or another <laughs> it's probably like that uh the guy in like the is it the fourth or the sixth century i know i talked about it on um failure to launch with uh queen and the two chrises uh check out that episode about uh the chinese rocket science scientist mafia war um and like the i can't vaguely remember him he like this guy strapped like 48 rockets to a chair and got all yeah and like just like they all lit it and like he disappeared so they assume oh he went to space rather than getting vaporized yeah i mean that's why like every single isis suicide bomber is actually orbiting the earth with satellites right now (laughs) that's the real space debris yeah um now, Saito's plan was very, very basic. 
they would resist the Americans from day zero. Like for before they got to the beach on the beach, they would resist them every single inch of the way. And without thoughts of winning and knowing that a battle of attrition was his only tactic to bleed the Americans so badly and might slow down their future plans, he decided the best thing to do was to turn the island into effectively a giant 50 square mile long death trap. Unfortunately for Saito, Saipan had a lot of beaches that were good for landing an invasion force, and he had no idea where the Americans would pick, so he would be forced to defend the entire coastline. Now, at this point, the American island hopping campaign had been long and brutal, and we've covered several parts of it on this show before. The Americans had learned a lot of lessons from places like Tarawa and the Solomons. And in this situation, somewhat differently than other operations, the U.S. Army and the U.S. Marines would be working together. Of course, this would turn into its own intermilitary beef in a bit, but we'll get there. Also, the logistical side of this operation is something so long and stupid, but somehow works that it could only be the product of the American military. Despite the Marianas Islands being 3,000 miles away from Hawaii, then an American territory, now a state, it would be the base for all of this. It was where the invasion force would come out from and it would act as the logistical hub, carrying a never-ending armada of supply ships that would fuel Operation Forager, despite the fact, again, 3,000 miles away. <laughs> it's the kind of shit that no one else is ever going to try to pull off. No, that sounds like, especially now when you think of like, like military logistics are just like so much more complicated because there's so much more technology involved. Like, like this was just like dudes on like uh, long transmission radios communicating. Now imagine you're like dickhead sergeant is there trying to like connect to the VPN on his military laptop and it's not working. And back in World War Two, it's like if you look at the statistics of like most ships built during the war, it's like it's like looking at the defense spending of the U.S. compared to everybody else, mm-hmm. like. America just hit the ships go burr button and just spit them out by the thousands. Um, Operation Forager began on June 11th, 1944, as the American fleet numbering of these several hundreds of combat ships, as well as 15 aircraft carriers under the command of Raymond Spruance, got within 200 miles of Saipan and began to spit out Hellcats to destroy the Japanese air force on the ground, as well as destroy airfields. So, you know, if a few Japanese planes got off the ground, they would have nowhere left to land. Afterwards, hundreds of American ships began a naval bombardment. And this is where things kind of go wrong for the U.S. Navy. The gunnery crews of these ships were pretty much brand new and had virtually no experience when it came to ground bombardment. There had been a ton of reconnaissance to pinpoint which areas needed to be hit more than others, but the naval bombardment just kind of fired wildly towards the island in the distance, hitting whatever it accidentally managed to hit. Of course, this didn't do much of anything. <laughs> it's and, and, you know, like, the credit where credit's due to the Japanese, like, they have been fighting on island hopping campaign for years as well, and they have mm. been getting bombarded by American coastal bombardments for years as well. So they were yeah. pretty good at def- like building bunkers that, unless they were like T-slotted with a direct hit from a naval cannon, they were probably <laughs> going to survive. Same goes for their like gun emplacements. Like they they knew how to build stuff at this point. You just said uh, just like double kill, yeah. overkill, headshot. Yeah, they they got the uh the the tenth uh, kill streak award, which is how the nuclear weapons were detonated. <laughs> Robert Oppenheimer got a twenty five kill streak and dropped the nuke. 
<laughs> yeah, but you know full well he was using those uh, uh, akimbo MP7s because Robert Oppenheimer was a bitch. He probably had martyrdom equipped too, the fucking asshole. Uh, uh, last stand using asshole. <laughs> this went on until June 15th, when the first invasion force of 8,000 Marines backed into hundreds of Amtrak landing vehicles. And unlike the Amtrak that Americans know and love today, these ones are actually on time. <laughs> Uh, they made for a four-mile-wide landing beach in the southwestern corner of the island at 7 a.m. And everything from the landing from here on out would go terribly wrong. Almost immediately, the men driving the Amtraks under Japanese fire, heavy surf, and wind got lost and began ran- landing men at random across a four-mile-long front. Now, good. S- some of the confusion actually had nothing to do with the Japanese, but because some guys read a map wrong. You see, the beaches are split up by color and number, which was very, very, very normal for mm. amphibious landings. The problem is, is the Marines, not trying to trash talk Marines here. They'll probably come later. But Marines... What, they can't read? They can't read. I mean, not being able to read maps is a tale as old as time when it comes to young officers at any bridge. <laughs> I am a Marine. I am in the water. I don't need to read. Fish can't read. I came here to bleed, not to read. Um, <laughs> now, uh, the Marines had never done an operation this size before. Like mm. the Marines of World War II were not the like the combined arms, large scale operations guys that they have weirdly turned into in the decades since. Right? They weren't tactical at this stage. No, they're mostly just like young guys from Nebraska who were really sick of being sent on islands they couldn't pronounce. Dudes from the center of America who have literally never seen a big body of water are some are suddenly in the Pacific. Like, I didn't know they had this much water. Yeah. Uh, and so they, you know, they have numbered and, and color coded beaches, but there's so many of them and they're transporting so many soldiers. Things just get fucked up. For example, like these beaches are split up like red one, red two, green one, green two, and so forth. It's like you having to switch for a whiz air flight in Rome. I don't want, look, I don't want, I'd rather land on Saipan than fly, fly one or whiz air ever again. Oh, um, I'm going to have to do it soon, but yeah, I, mean, I will be as well, unfortunately. Because <laughs> when you live in a place that is not a travel hub, you pretty much have to rely on low-cost airlines. Um, now, one of the guys in charge of one wave simply saw green on a map and assumed this must be the right beach. But he'd actually landed Marines at green two that were supposed to go to green one. So as soon as they got to shore, nobody was unsure of who's in command of what or where they had to go because like, they're looking at their map of where their objectives are supposed to be because they're like, they assume they land on the right beach because like no one's going to think like the Navy is going to drop us off in the wrong fucking place. This is your only job. And they look at the map and like this looks completely different. Yeah, these these uh, Marines are like Ken in the latest Barbie movie. Their job is beach. <laughs> I mean, kind of. Yeah, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what beach. My job is just beach. Yeah, it's like if Ken had to run ashore on a beach through landmines. <laughs> I'd watch that in Barbie too. Yeah, that actually, but funnily enough, since we're talking about Ken, um, after Barbie came out and obviously became wildly popular, brands like Mattel were trying to figure out, like, okay, how can we fe- sell like dolls to boys? It was G.I. Joe, like, right? Yeah, I was called, do you know what it was called in uh, the UK and Europe? G.I. Uh, Philip? It was called, Hoyt. Action- it was called Action Man. <laughs> 
I used to have an action man as a kid. Action man is just G.I. Joe, but he's inbred and wearing a pith helmet. <laughs> we give G.I. Joe a Habsburg jaw. <laughs> now, as soon as the Marines actually got to shore, wrong beach or not, the Japanese artillery opened fire on them. Virtually all of their guns had survived the naval bombardment, and the shelling on the beach was so intense that Marines thought they'd actually land in the middle of a minefield. Now, this was actually made easier by the Japanese because they had bracketed the entire beach and planted flags. So like, you know, when it's like reference points rather rather than actually having to like figure out where anything was. Yeah. Distance and everything. The artillery gunners could just be like green flag and they knew exactly (laughs) what that meant. And then, you know, Marines got rapidly turned into pasta sauce. (laughs) The Japanese artillery were using an aim bot. Yes. They just had a modded 360 controller. <laughs> They're doing like 360 no scopes with mortars. It all comes back to Counter Strike, baby. See, the problem <laughs> with the Marines was they didn't come to shore hopping up and down. Otherwise, they, yeah, they weren't. They weren't doing like op reload tricks, you know. <laughs> Another interesting fact that nobody learned until that moment was Saipan's beach is a particular kind of sand that is incredibly fine to the point it's almost dust. So the Japanese artillery churned this shit up creating what is effectively a giant dust storm on the beach, making breathing and seeing a real pain in the ass. Also, I suppose as well for landing, if it's, like, so fine, it's probably not that porous and absorbent. So, like, as soon as your, like, stuff is landing on the beach, it's probably getting stuck in the drift sand before it even properly beaches. That's right. Which will bring us to the story about the tanks in a little bit. Oh, God. Why, I... Peek behind the curtain, I never see any of these scripts, and somehow I all, despite not knowing anything about what we talk about, I somehow have, like, have premonitions about what's about to fuck people over. I can't remember which one of of our guests or co-hosts over the years, like, can I take a peek at the script versus, like, (laughs) no. Yeah. (laughs) It's against our bylaws. Um... Now, the shells pounded the Marines, but also their Amtrak, scaring the shit out of the men operating them. One, on one, Yellow Beach, so named due to the massive amount of urine rapidly filling the pants of the people landing there, <laughs> the Amtraks didn't even stick around long enough to unload ammo for the Marines or their heavy weapons, like machine guns or mortars. They just like, get the fuck out, we're leaving. Speaking of piss, actually, I, I found something out That's kind of That's always disturbed. a good way to start a story. <laughs> I found something out kind of weird. Um... Apparently, there's a thing with, like, dudes who put up drywall and everything, because, like, obviously, they're on the stilts and stuff, and, like, they'll piss in a plastic bottle and put it in people's walls and just, like, plaster over it and just, like, leave it as a surprise for the next renovator. Yeah, it's called insulation, Tom. You you live in the UK. <laughs> you never would have heard of it. Insulating my home with bottles of piss. Entire battalions got pinned down after only advancing a few yards inland. And, and then within a few hours of the first wave, all four battalion commanders of the Marines were wounded or killed in rapid succession. Saito was shocked, however, to see all of this. The Marines kept crawling forward and assaulted unsupported directly at his face and towards the village of Chiron Kanoa. It was the first time that American forces had actually ever attacked a Japanese settlement on foot. By noon, pretty much all of the senior officers of the 6th Marine Division were dead or wounded, as well as their rank and file absorbing a full 35% casualty rate. Soon, Divisional Commander Colonel James Risley was spot-promoting young officers to fill these roles, leading to one example of a platoon commander, that being the lowest-ranking lieutenant possible, being in charge of an entire battalion because he was the last one standing. How exactly do, like, 
promotions in the middle of battle work? Uh, I mean, it's kind of, uh, you'll either be told over the radio or, and most likely you'll realize, like, I am the only officer left. I have no choice. <laughs> Once again, this is just like Call of Duty. You know, you get a kill streak, you get some points, and then you, like, you get an XP boost, and suddenly you're a new rank in the middle of the battle. That's right. Except Mean- the XP boost is all of your, uh, fellow like officers just getting mincemeat yeah you absorb their power meanwhile the eighth marines attacked an area called Afentna point a heavily forested part of the island that saito had filled with machine gun bunkers in such a way he could fire down at the length of the beachhead previously marines had slugged it out with japanese in defense jungle fighting and learned a valuable lesson shotguns are pretty fun so a a mostly shotgun wielding force of marines blew through Afentna point capturing it to the south of them, other Marines are trying to capture a concrete boat landing. Not because they wanted to use it for like launching a boat or whatever, but they knew it was the only place to be able to land their Sherman tanks they had brought with them. Previous experience had shown them that beaches are not exactly the best terrain for tracked vehicles. And the Japanese had their own experience with American tanks, namely those of the flamethrower variety. And many of these were exactly that. So they fought tooth and nail to push the Americans back from the boat landing before they got, you know, the flame shooting Warhammer 40k tanks rolling up on them. <laughs> There's just like a Marine commander still on the boat. They're like sacrificing psychers to like fuel his power. <laughs> and he's like, send the flamethrower tanks. That's right. Because of this, many of the landing craft carrying the tanks are immediately targeted. And soon the Japanese gunners saw them and sank them before they made it to shore. Now, probably the craziest thing that happened on the beach was a near point-blank artillery duel. The Marines quickly landed two battalions of 75mm howitzers, as well as three 105mm howitzers, whose crews set them up within a few minutes, all while under direct fire. They then began a direct fire duel with the dug-in Japanese artillery only a few hundred yards away, like something out of the 1800s. The Japanese commander, Saito, also favored constant counterattacks in order to keep the Americans on their toes rather than let them sit behind defenses. However, Saito wasn't about to order bonsai charges because he thought they'd be wasteful. Rather than he favored well-led and well-planned out counterattacks using tanks that the Japanese also had on the island. That didn't always happen, though, as commanders took it upon themselves to order smaller bonsai charges towards the Marines using the smaller commands under them. Though some soldiers knew Saito's orders and simply wouldn't join in when some junior officer <laughs> drew his sword. One example given was one Japanese sergeant kind of pump faked a junior officer when he ordered a bonsai charge, acting like he was totally going to follow him. Only then when the, when the lieutenant ran by, he just sat down and watched him run off into the distance. <laughs> That's a very fuck you energy. Yeah, and uncommon in the Japanese Imperial Army. Yeah. By sundown, over 20,000 Americans had created a beachhead that extended 10,000 yards long and 1,000 yards deep, which sounds impressive, but it was actually supposed to be double that by now. It was now that Saito decided it was time for a massive counterattack, and he completely fucked it up. He put his tanks and thousands of infantry under the command of Tirashi Hirakushi, who was a public affairs officer. No idea why he chose him. Then this... Then the soldiers were given their regimental banner to inspire him, until someone told Saito that the guy he put in command had no fucking idea what he was doing, so he was fired. Saito replaced him. The new officer who led the counterattack was a combat leader, and he inspired his men by jumping up onto the turret of the lead tank, pulling his sword out, and waving it around in the air to inspire his men. The tank was immediately hit by an American artillery shell and exploded, killing him on the spot. (laughs) 
oh, that's like, oh, I'm that must have been like so comedic to see. It's like this guy, like he's just like jumping up and you see him like waving and rallying the troops. Then just like in the blink of an eye, he's just evaporated. <laughs> Banzai! Ah, oh, fuck. Now leaderless, the rest of the Japanese counterattack surged forward, appearing seemingly out of nowhere in the middle of the darkness, only a hundred yards from marine lines. They ran directly into dozens of machine gun positions, destroying them before they could achieve anything. The second day of the invasion was, wasn't marked by an American advance, but rather a consolidation of what they had. U.S. Army soldiers were floated in to reinforce the Marines after the invasion of Guam was postponed and they could be flexed over. They shipped in supplies and reinforcements, as well as five-gallon drums of ice cream, because why not? However, the Army's landing on the beach was completely botched. Nobody had told the Navy that the Army was coming ashore, meaning when they tried to land, they just kept crashing into the coastal vessels that were already there. Naval officers got on the bullhorn and started yelling across the ocean, demanding to know who the fuck was hitting them and why. The process took hours, and by the time the Army finally got there, uh, they had been stuck at sea for hours, vomiting from seasickness, and just exhausted. However, the Japanese continued their constant, unrelenting counterattacks and artillery. By the time the sun went down on day two, 50% of the Marines' officers had become casualties, killed or wounded. Then, that night, Saito launched another large-scale counterattack with thousands of men and tanks, this time under Takashi Goto. Well, it launched at night, but it actually wasn't supposed to. Saito ordered it to start at 5 p.m., but Gato was given soldiers from several different army units, but also the Navy, and he had no idea where they all were. It took him so long to try to organize something that looked like an attacking force that didn't start until 3 a.m. I don't think I've been that late for anything before. <laughs> then, any and all surprise was ruined when Gato mounted a tank and passed orders to attack the only way he could due to complete lack of radios. He used a fucking bugle. <laughs> he literally announced his attack to the Americans. So it wasn't as much as a surprise, but it was more successful. Uh, they broke through the Marine line in several places, and it led to probably one of the most Marine things I'd ever read about. A Japanese tank ran over a Marine foxhole. So one of the Marines waited for the tank to keep going, loaded his grenade launcher, and attempted to shoot at the tank from behind. I don't know why he would have thought this worked. The grenade bounced off, flew right back at him, and exploded in his face, nearly killing him. Wait, how does a grenade explode in your face and not kill you? He like he, he managed to duck in time. Like he, <laughs> I mean, he he was wounded but not killed by his own grenade that he yeah, shot he, again at a tank. He put too many points into agility, so he was able to dodge it. That's right. Once Marine artillery got dialed in, the Japanese attack got blown to pieces. Something made worse by U.S. Navy destroyers who began to fire off what they're called star shells. So they like giant illumination rounds that turn pitch darkness into broad daylight. So the, the one advantage that the Japanese had was quickly eliminated. Marines were so close to the Japanese that things quickly devolved into bayonet swords and literal shit talking as Marines screamed at them in the few words of Japanese that they knew, which were all of course curse words. And the <laughs> Japanese did the exact same thing in English. During one of these nighttime bonsai charges, we get one of the strangest stories of a last stand in U.S. Army history, a guy named Benjamin Solomon, a former private turned dentist. He had been assigned to be a field surgeon due to the lack of available medical personnel, which, sure, he went to medical school close enough. 
During one of the bonsai charges, the Japanese smashed through a section of the American front line where Solomon's field hospital was only about 50 yards away, putting him directly in the way of the coming attack. Solomon ordered all of the wounded who could leave to get the fuck out, and he would stay behind to cover their withdrawal and defend the wounded men that couldn't move. The dentist then took up a rifle and defended his hospital. When his rifle ran out of ammo, he found a machine gun and manned it alone. And nobody's entirely sure what happened next, but when soldiers fought their way back and retook the hospital, they found Solomon dead next to his machine gun, wounded over 70 times with bullets and bayonets, and in front of him were the dead bodies of at least 100 Japanese soldiers. Solomon became the only third Jewish man in American history to receive the Medal of Honor, though they almost didn't give it to him. As a doctor, he was legally considered a non-combatant, meaning he was not allowed to carry a machine gun or use one in combat. Uh, so it took until 2002 before the Medal of Honor was finally approved. And he, somehow, he's not even the only dentist to get a Medal of Honor. He's the third. Yeah, see, the dentists are used to holding that drill, you know, drilling into your face. They're not, they're not afraid to get the mac out. The dentists are used to being surrounded by misery and that everybody doesn't want to talk to them. So they, yeah. they have a lot of pent-up anger. It's like in the movie Whole Nine Yards where they keep joking that dentists kill themselves a lot. <laughs> The Japanese attack broke by first light, and they withdrew towards Mount Tipo. Dozens of Japanese tanks and nearly a thousand Japanese soldiers were killed, and they gained nothing. After this, Holland Smith, the commander of the Marines, sent his forces to the southern part of the island, where he planned to cut north through the highlands, along with uh, more Marine units, and the U.S. Army's 27th Infantry would secure their flanks towards Osalito Air Base. The south of Saipan was not where the Japanese wanted to defend. Saito took one look at the map, saw his mostly flat farmland, and decided to order a fighting retreat. Saito kept expecting the Japanese fleet to come busting through, breaking a hole through the U.S. Navy, landing reinforcements and supplies, both of which he badly needed. However, that was not to be. The attempt to do so was eventually called the Battle of the Philippine Sea, nicknamed the Great Marianas Turkey Shoot, and ended in a crushing Japanese defeat from which the Imperial Navy would never recover from. So, Navy gone. Marine General Holland Smith orders men to sweep through the south, and the U.S. Army's 165th Infantry Regiment captured the airfield, promptly renaming it Conroy Airfield, after their previously murdered commander, who died during the invasion of Macon. And one of the most petty things we've probably talked about before, when U.S. Army troops moved uh, off the airfield toward Nafutan Ridge, the Marines moved in and then renamed the airfield after a dead Marine instead. Now, this is where we're going to talk about the feud between the Army Commander, Ralph Smith, and the Marine Commander, Holland Smith. Yes, they're both named Smith. I'm going to go by their first names to make this easier. For starters, Holland didn't want the Army to be with his Marines at all. He actually did the same thing at Tarawa, which we talked about back in our episode then. And Ralph was tasked with falling under his command. Ralph's unit, the 27th, was actually a unit of the New York National Guard, even though he himself was from Nebraska. He then fought in World War I. By all accounts, he was a level-headed, chill guy who hardly raised his voice at all. Holland was not that kind of person. He was born in Alabama, well-known for being a loudmouth prick who drank too much. And he probably really hated the Army because after he finished law school, he tried to, get a, he tried to become an officer in the Army, but was rejected. So he settled for the Marines, a branch he had never previously heard of up until that point. The two had met before during the invasion of Macon, where Holland screamed at Ralph that his men weren't aggressive enough, saying they're too slow, too cautious. But in reality, that's not what that was. That's just how the army fought. They would 
advance much more slowly. They'd probe enemy defenses and scout ahead and only order attack when they thought they had figured out everywhere the enemy could be and could call on artillery to support their attack. While Holland demand they fight like Marines, sprinting forward on the attack no matter what, scouting be damned. This began to rear its head again as the Marines and the soldiers advanced towards Mount Tapachau, which the main Japanese defenses were anchored in. The Marines rapidly advanced while the army did not, owing to their very different tactics. Furthermore, when Holland gave orders for Ralph's forces to advance, he didn't bother to actually look at the terrain they would be advancing over. Soldiers were forced to advance through steep valleys and ridges that had been lined with both homemade and naturally made caves, which the Japanese had reinforced and used as defensive points, over every single one would be fought to the death. This, of course, slowed the soldiers down more. These caves, ridgelines, and valleys became hell for the soldiers, and they earned nicknames like Hell's Pocket, Death Valley, and Purple Heart Ridge. As the soldiers were ground into a meat-like paste, Holland complained to Ralph's boss, General Standiford Jarman. By his name. That name alert, yeah. He was moving too slow and therefore bogging down the entire operation as the Marines had to keep waiting for him. Ralph told the general that, you know, I'll lead the next day's attack into the, into the valleys and ridges myself and prove to you that my soldiers could advance. But it didn't matter. The Japanese defenses were just too thick, too stubborn, and again, a system of caves. Like, mm. there's no quick way to advance through this. While the Marines- down there with the Morlocks. Yeah, they're 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 fighting with the the goblins of Moria or whatever, <laughs> and uh, you know the problem was that the Japanese brought a Balrog, but uh, it, the, while the Marines would be much more likely to skip by defensive points and keep pushing forward, the army wouldn't and would instead secure everything. The Marines were still facing stiff opposition as well, but not nearly in the same kind of terrain, and they moved much faster, causing the American front line to kind of sag where the army was stationed. So Holland asked Admiral Spruance to fire Ralph, and he did. Ralph was fired so quickly that he didn't even have time to like tell the incoming commander like what he has to prepare for. He was, he was immediately kicked off the island like an hour after he was fired, and this was explicitly at the demand of Holland. Uh, so... This led to a massive blow-up between the services, an investigation, a board of inquiry, and even more than one all-out screaming match between Army and Navy brass. In the end, it found the Navy technically did have the regular... Like, they were within their, their, their rights to fire Ralph because he was a subordinate in that, at that point in time. But they found that Holland did it based on just his simple hatred of the Army, rather than having anything to do with the facts on the ground, because Holland and the Marines as a whole lack the ability to actually command and coordinate a large-scale offensive like the one in Saipan, because they'd never done it before. The soldiers, now demoralized by their commander's firing, along with the obvious fact that their Navy and Marine bosses hated them, were now forced to clear the same areas with a new commander that barely had any idea what he was dealing with. Soldiers and Marines are forced to adopt slow, violent tactics to deal with them. According to one Marine, Quote, quite often there'd be multiple cave openings, each protecting another. Lying down heavy cover fire, our specialists would advance to the mouth of the cave, a satchel bomb would be thrown into the mouth, and then followed by a loud blast of the dynamite. But there were hundreds, possibly thousands of these caves, large and small, each of them defended by a dozen or hundreds of Japanese soldiers fighting to the death. These operations caused Marines and soldiers to absorb thousands of casualties in just a week uh, as they fought towards Mount Tapachau, and it finally fell to the American forces. American soldiers fighting the Pacific also ran into something they weren't prepared for, civilians. 
Up until that point, the vast majority of the fighting had been over barren specks of rock that if they ever had a civilian population, the Japanese had deported them somewhere to be slaves. So on Saipan, they ran into their first actual population that hadn't been, and they had no training or guidance to deal with them whatsoever, and the Japanese took advantage of that. Japanese soldiers launched ambushes from behind human civilian shields, which caught the Americans by surprise. The civilians had also been told for years that American soldiers were serial murderers, rapists, and barbarians, and you know you should never allow yourself to fall into their captivity. So many civilians, Japanese or native, worked with the Imperial Army to help defend the island. This led to a very gray area where some units fired on civilians on sight, while others didn't, as there was no orders one way or another. Largely, human empathy did shine through to the shock of, I'm assuming, everybody listening to this. Americans, Marines, soldiers, sailors alike, evacuated most civilians they came across if they came across them while they were still alive, trying to get them out of harm's way. One Marine remembered having to virtually tackle and restrain a Japanese mother who was holding a baby because they were sure they're about to be horrifically butchered by the American forces, as like they'd been told. The two of them had been wounded and the Marines were trying to give them first aid, and they're finally able to like force them to get into a Jeep and get them to a field hospital. And this isn't to say that there weren't civilian casualties caused by Americans in Saipan, because there was. For example, there were a lot of bunkers built to protect civilians by the Japanese that lay spread out throughout the entire island. Unfortunately, they looked the exact same as military bunkers. Yeah, that, that seems like a poor design choice. I don't think the Japanese cared. Um, and probably an intentional design choice. Yeah, probably. American forces in the Pacific, again, had no experience dealing with civilians on the battlefield, and it is 1944. Even if they did, it probably would have ended the same way. Thousands of civilians were killed by flamethrowers and hand grenades because Americans came through up to their bunkers, assuming they were military bunkers, and only discovered they were civilian bunkers when it was too late. Though one guy, Guy Gabaldon, was a Mexican-American from East L.A. who had been adopted by a Japanese family early in his life. And he ended up saving more lives than probably any other American during the entire war, Pacific or European. I was about to say, I'd say the food in his family's house fucking slapped. Oh, yeah. Now, Guy was a Marine and had a pretty important skill that nobody else had. He spoke fluent Japanese, owing to the fact that he had spent years going to Japanese language school with his adopted family. So, Guy snuck out in the middle of the night on his own and began yelling in Japanese the soldiers and civilians liked to surrender. They had been lied to and they were not going to be hurt. At first, his commander thought he was fucking insane, because of course he did. But then one night he came back with 50 prisoners of war, which is unheard of in the Pacific theater. After that, his commander gave him permission to sneak out at night and try to convince people to surrender. Over 1,000 soldiers and civilians surrendered to Guy, earning him the nickname the Pied Piper of Saipan. Just so the impact of Guy's actions is fully understood, only 15,000 Japanese soldiers and civilians survived and surrendered at the end of the battle. He was responsible for a full 1,500 of those. And some people question his accounts, but Marine and Army historians alike all confirm his actions. At the time of this podcast, the citation used to award him his Navy Cross is under review to be upgraded to a Medal of Honor. Now, by the end of June, it was pretty obvious to everybody that the Japanese side, that they were screwed. The Navy had been ethered at the Battle of the Philippine Sea, something they learned when the U.S. Navy returned to Saipan to continue bombing the shit out of them. They'd lost thousands of men, and all was lost. 
Saito was quartered in the very north of the island, where he was planning their final defense. The Japanese soldiers who survived this long were greeted by intense shortages of just about everything. The garrison had no more food or water. They were reduced to drinking unsafe puddle water wherever they could find it. They're eating grass and tree bark. And, you know, this... Oh, of no, course, not the grass. Everything comes back to eating grass, baby. Live fast, eat grass. And then, you know, disease. They all had yeah. awful, awful diseases at this point. <laughs> Eventually, Saito's final defense was, again, constant suicidal counterattacks. On June 27th, 500 Japanese soldiers broke through the American defenses around the Isli airfield, and once inside, they set planes on fire, blew up ammo and fuel dumps, and tried to do as much damage before they were finally wiped out. The same thing happened at the Marine-occupied city of Garapon, which used to be home to 15,000 people, and it was now completely un- like deserted and abandoned. Mm-hmm. And Japanese soldiers stormed the town and tried to do the same thing before they were wiped out. Now, it was pretty obvious at this point, like, Holland Smith was like, there's got to be a bonsai charge coming. Their backs are against the wall. They have nowhere left to go. And it turned out he was right. Admiral Nagumo and General Saito had decided that a mass bonsai charge was their last course of action, though neither of them would be taking part in it. When they were asked if they would like to lead the attack, Saito, the army officer, was about to say yes. When Admiral Nagumo, a naval officer, said, no, thank you. (laughs) <laughs> I would rather commit ritual suicide instead. Uh, of course, meeting, you know, the, the ritualistic belly cutting of, of, of Harikiri. The entire day was spent planning for the attack. The soldiers were short of rifles. Uh, so like a collection of this strange collection of thousands of soldiers, sailors, a couple civilians, all armed themselves with rifles, swords, homemade bamboo, spears, rocks, knives, anything they get their hands on. Everybody was included, including people that were like walking along on crutches, having, having previously their legs blown off. So at 4 a.m. on July 7th, the Japanese launched what would be their largest bonsai charge of the entire war down the northwestern shore of the island. 5,000 men charged directly towards the position of the 1st and 2nd Battalions of the 105th Infantry Regiment, the 27th Infantry Division, and supporting Marine units. For the defending soldiers, it came out of nowhere. They described it like the night itself had come alive and begun screaming at them. The American frontline positions broke immediately, and they were forced to withdraw as mortar tubes and artillery blasted the Japanese so quickly their guns became red-hot and unusable. Isolated American positions fired their machine guns so fast their barrels melted. Nothing slowed the Japanese charge down. One American sergeant, Thomas Baker, was wounded, and rather than slow the rest of his men down by having them carry him, he told them to fuck off, leave him behind, and just leave him a pistol. They gave him a Model 1911 pistol, which held eight bullets. Hours later, when soldiers fought their way back to where they left him, they found his body stabbed to shit and back with eight dead Japanese soldiers in front of him. He he did not miss a single shot. (laughs) He got that last stand. Yeah. Another soldier, Lieutenant Colonel William O'Brien, that's for you, Tom, (laughs) found his entire unit surrounded and cut off during the charge. His men had run out of ammo, so O'Brien ran up and down the line, murdering Japanese soldiers with a shovel. Yes. When he was wounded, he gave up his position on an evacuation uh, mission that had broken through the lines. Instead, he climbed on top of a jeep armed with a machine gun, told his unit to re- uh, to withdraw, and he would cover them. The last anyone saw him, he was alive, firing nonstop into thousands of Japanese soldiers. I assume wearing like aviator sunglasses and a cigarette in his mouth to complete the look. <laughs> 
American forces were pushed back for hours until the charge finally lost steam. Having been machine gun shelled, stabbed, and shoveled as they advanced, the Japanese petered out, leaving behind 4,000 dead. The Americans, in just a few hours, lost a thousand of their own. Meanwhile, back at the Japanese command cave complex, Saitos had shot himself in the head. Well, he tried to shoot himself in the head. He couldn't, he couldn't muster the courage. His aide had to shoot him. Yeah, he made the technical mistake of trying to shoot himself in the temple rather than up through the roof of your mouth. <laughs> he, he couldn't muster like the, the balls to do it himself, so he had to give it to his assistant. Like, hey, could you handle this for me? <laughs> then Nagumo had one, la- one last final fuck you to the army. A soldier stepped forward to offer to do the same thing for him, but he, re- he refused, saying, I need to retain my honor. Go find a sailor so they can shoot me. So, the- <laughs> so he did. So that is how the once proud naval commander of the attack on Pearl Harbor died, thirsty and starving in a cave on a remote island. At this point, organized resistance all but ended. Isolated pockets of Japanese soldiers would go on to fight for weeks, though. Then... The Marines and soldiers of the U.S. military discovered probably one of the most horrific things American ground forces would see during the Pacific War. Content warning for this one, guys. High on Marpy Point, in the northernmost corner of the islands, thousands of civilians had perched themselves on a cliff face. Fueled by Japanese propaganda about the horrible things the Marines and the soldiers would do to them should they fall into American hands, they began to throw themselves over the cliffs into the rocks and the ocean below. Entire families huddled together and blew themselves with hand grenades. Watching this entire thing unfold in front of them, Americans brought Saipanese and, and Japanese civilians who had surrendered to the Americans to come out and yell at them through bullhorns that like they had been lied to. Don't kill yourself. Come join us. But it didn't work. So soldiers and Marines tried to get closer to stop the mass suicide from continuing, but they saw that it only caused the civilians to kill themselves faster. There are also stragglers from the Imperial Army amongst them, encouraging them to kill themselves, and in many cases, throwing them off the cliffs themselves. Unable to stop what was happening and having no recourse, American forces watched as around 5,000 men, women, and children committed mass suicide over the course of the next day and a half. Today, these sites are memorials on Saipan known as Suicide and Bonsai Cliff. By the end of the battle, virtually the entire Japanese garrison had been destroyed, and for the Americans, it was the most deadly Pacific battle of the war so far. Remember, there's two very important other battles that are coming. <laughs> of the 71,000 men in total who landed, 3,000 were dead. Another 10,000 were wounded. Of the wounded, there's actually future Hollywood star Lee Marvin, who was shot twice and got shrapnel in his ass cheeks. <laughs> yeah, he got that shiny metal ass. The fall of Saipan was devastating for the Empire of Japan. Now American bombers are only 1,000 miles away from the home islands, and soon B-29 bombers would be flying out of it, raining death and destruction onto the cities of the home front without end. Japanese Prime Minister Hideki Tojo resigned, along with his entire cabinet, against the wishes of the emperor. He was replaced by Kuniaki Kosio, a former general of the Imperial Army. Though at this point, the civilian government had no power, and Japan would be a full military dictatorship until the end of the war. Naval advisor to the emperor, Osami Nagano, upon hearing about the fall of Saipan, told the emperor, soon hell will be upon us. And he was correct. Yeah. And so like, there's a lot of small other end notes here uh, that the battle of Saipan would bleed over into the decision to nuke Japan. 
And that is the belief that they would be fighting the entire country because they saw how the civilians in Saipan reacted to American soldiers. So like this battle has a lot of other strange ripple effects. And I'm not going to go into like obviously the full reasoning the full reasoning and, and tactics and everything of, of nuking Japan until you know I eventually do for a series. But like this had a this made a lot of people believe like these people are completely brainwashed. Look what they did. And like that is a very simplistic view of this. A lot of the like this was a mass suicide, but also a mass murder committed by the Imperial Japanese army. Like the people who didn't want to kill themselves were forced to do so. Like it's absolutely awful. Um, Every time I think I have heard the worst thing that the Japanese did during World War II, you always seem to just like find something that's way more horrific. I consider that a resume bullet. Thank you. Uh, Now it's, um, I mean, they, the Japanese imperial military and the government doesn't get enough credit for how awful of, a mon- of monsters they were, at least not on the Western side of the world. Asia knows full well, uh, um, but like, it seems to, you know, because uh, the, the Western education of this stuff, at least in the United States, I can't speak for any other country or the UK or whatever, really likes to focus on the European front because it's cleaner. I mean, even though the Nazis were involved and they're, you know, the historical monsters like it's very easy uh to to talk about the grand victories of europe uh you know these clean normal military operations rather than like oh yeah we just ethered two thousand marines over a rock with nobody on it like it, it doesn't ring the same way that's why the, the the mythos of the pacific front tends to focus on okinawa iwo jima and the nukes like clear-cut military operations which were horrific but comparable to something in europe i th- i i think um but tom that is the battle of saipan fuck me yeah roy Keane was good was right to leave in 2002 <laughs> um now we've come to the end of our show please plug your show uh listen to beneath the skin the show about the history of everything told through the history of tattooing um like uh we do cool episodes about different like tattoo related stuff like russian prison tattoos and we have an episode coming up with a maori tattooer called tay rangitu who that's going to come out in like see this is coming out yeah that should be coming out after this episode goes out publicly and so we're going to do we've really long episode with him talking about you know the history behind Polynesian, specifically Maori tattooing, the kind of metaphysical, spiritual stuff, and also like the cultural legacy of it and its, you know, modern history. So if that sounds like something you'd be interested in, check it out. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me here today. If you like what we do here on the show, consider supporting us on Patreon. You get five plus years of bonus content, Discord access, stickers, uh, access to pre orders on our merchandise. Uh, or leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And failing that, maybe consider reading one of my books available wherever it is you find books. And until. Oh, also, follow the show on Instagram, Lines Led by Donkeys Podcast. I continue to forget that we have one of those. So do that. <laughs> um, and until next time, uh, when you invade a beach, make sure to do bunny hops. <laughs>